Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. Well, good morning again. We are in our study in uh, the book of Hebrews. We're going to be, as Jim said, in uh, Jane, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 12. Um, I just want to give a little shout out to James Rizzer. Um, Jamie and Ruthann have been coming for a few years, and uh, Jim, I meet with Jim almost weekly on um, Thursday mornings. Uh, Jim is a, uh, a great uh, studier of the Word and uh, loves diving into the Greek, which I know almost nothing about, and if you want to look at it that way. And uh, we'll sit for two or three hours sometimes and just look at the text and look at the, what the Word says. And, and he's just been a real encouragement to me. So I just want to thank you, Jim, for all that you do for me. And, um, you know, Scripture says that we are to mentor one another. We are to train up other people. And even though um, I'm 56, so it's hard to find guys older than me, uh, Jim is older than me. So he can do that for me. Not that I don't learn from the young guys as well. I do. So i uh, very grateful. All right, so here we are in, in Hebrews chapter 12. Um, I, I want to I make sure that we understand where we're at again because as we, as we read and preach through this book, it, this, these verses don't stand alone. I think that's, obviously that seems pretty um, understandable that th- these verses that we're getting ready to cover are in the context of a, of a bigger discussion, a bigger story. A bigger narrative here, what, what the author is trying to say. So we want to make sure that we understand the context of this so that when we come to these passages, they make sense in our mind. And so I just want to take a, a second to kind of go back and, and talk a little bit about where we're at and what's been happening here in the book of Hebrews. Uh, the book of Hebrews was obviously written uh, by someone that we're not sure of, but it's been written to a, a group of Hebrews that have, have become Christian. At least most of them, we believe, have become Christian. And, and so they've been following the way of the Old Testament. They've been rooted there. We've talked about how, how challenged it must have been to leave um, the way of the, the sacrificial system because it's what the God had established. It was good. And then when Jesus comes along and says, well, now I have fulfilled all of those things and you must follow me. Leave that behind. It was good and it was right, but leave that behind and come and follow me. How hard that must have been. And so the writer has been really building a case for why this is important and how they must do this. And so he opens basically the book and basically begins to, to say who Jesus is. That he's greater than Moses. He's, he's greater than the angels. And he's really just trying to let these people know that, that Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the great high priest that we've been looking for. And so he spends much of the book talking about that. And, and then he kind of counsels his, his readers here. He says, but now we don't want to be like our ancestors who deserted God in the desert and were unfaithful. And then he gets to chapter 11, and now he says, but we have ancestors that were faithful, and, and we, want to, we want to model after them. We, that, that's a great cloud of witnesses, he says it's in chapter 12. This great cloud of witnesses that, that we can look back and say, this is how they lived their life. This is how they gave their life away for God. And, and because he realizes that what he's writing to, his people that he's writing to here, the readers of this book, and, and this is true for us today, he's asking them to give their life away. And you say, and that's not really what, no, that's what he's asking. He's asking, because just last week or two weeks ago, we said you know, that, that Jesus endured the cross, going in its shame, right? He was crucified. He, Jesus says, come and follow me. And that may mean death. 
that may mean persecution. It may mean being ostracized. It may, it may not. But come and follow me. Give me your life. And, and so what the author is trying to do is he's trying to say, look, I know what I'm getting ready to ask you, and so I want to tell you who he is so that you can have a confidence. I'm going to tell you what we shouldn't do and how we shouldn't live, but then I want to tell you who, here's how we should live. And by the way, Jesus is the thing that we should watch and follow after and mirror ourselves after his life. And so that brought us up to last week. And then Brian talks about the text here in verses 4 through 11. And it's about discipline. That God disciplines those he loves. And that I've studied that this week, and that's a tough passage. Not just that passage, but those verses there. Because we start to, we start to question, well, what does it mean that God disciplines us? Does that mean that, that it's a corrective discipline? That it's, it's those for us that are in sin? And Because when we think of discipline, many times we think of when our, when our son or, or when an employee does something wrong or, or incorrectly, um, in our case, maybe something sinfully, we would have discipline. We would have correction for someone. And clearly, that is included in this idea of discipline. But I would encourage you to expand that view just a little bit. And Brian did that last week. He went into 1 Peter. And in 1 Peter, where we see this endurance that is necessary in the Christian walk, that endurance is necessary because of persecution, not because of internal sin. Don't miss that. There's this idea of discipline can also be one that God is, is forming and shaping his people for a purpose. And he, he uses corrective discipline when we're in sin at times. Absolutely. It's good and right. But he also uses all things, as Romans 8.28 says, for our good. And that means all things. That means he allows all things and how we respond to that matters. And so when they're in the early church, he was, he was allowing them to be persecuted in 1 Peter. He was really disciplining them, not in the sense that they were wrong or, or they'd done something wrong, but he was honing them and, and really causing them to build up muscle. Remember, the, the, the metaphor here is one of a runner, right? One of a runner. And I used this conversation a little bit, this analogy a little bit a few weeks ago uh, when I played soccer for uh, many years at high school level and then adult level, um, you know, I was, I was being persecuted by our coach because <laughs> we ran miles and miles and miles and miles. And it felt like when Brian said last week that at the time, discipline doesn't seem pleasant, right? Well, I was being disciplined. Our whole team was being disciplined, not because we'd done anything wrong, because he was disciplining us in the way of of being fit, of a way to, to, to really grow and to, to mature as, as, as players, uh, to be in shape. There's a discipline that takes place there, and he's forging us so that we can be a better team, so that we can be better on the field. But the question is, how do we respond to the discipline? And so if we respond well and say, yes, I'm going to take this. I'm not going to have a bitterness about it. I'm going to take this and, and do what the God has asked me to do. I'm going to respond well to this. And I think that, that that's the key when we look at discipline. It is not just discipline in the sense that we've done something wrong, but all things God is shaping his people for a purpose. God uses all things. And so I, I talked to some folks this week about what's been happening in Florida, and, and many people have um, had some homes damages and power was out and my in-laws live down there. Some people in our church have lived down there. And I've had some conversations with some of these folks. And you say, well, 
did, was God disciplining those people that he destroyed their homes? I would say for believers, you could say yes. Now, he wasn't disciplined because they'd done anything wrong. That's just the sinful nature of the world, the curse of the world. A, a hurricane comes across and, and does that. God's not like intentionally doing that. But is God using that in the lives of believers to strengthen their faith? I believe absolutely. Why? And I talked to a, a couple this week. Because when God takes away something worldly from us, a house, and I don't mean it's a bad thing, what are we, how do we respond? We're to, to rest in God. We're to, to look to him, right? Everything in the world is, is temporary. And so when God takes something from us, it, it forges our faith. It says, where, where is my faith? Where is, where's my treasure in this life? It's in Christ. And so it's, it's always shaping us and disciplining us for the work of the kingdom. And so I don't want you to miss that because when we think about this now and, and what God is now doing in verses um, 12 through 17, he's going to say because that God has been doing that in your life, because he's been shaping you and preparing you for the race of the Christian life, now I'm going to instruct you how to run, right? I've prepared you. I've let all of these things be part of it, right? And yes, they've been hard. Yes, they've not been pleasant. But there's eternity, right? And so that leads me to your big idea for you this morning. God instructs us how to run the race, right? It's playing right into this metaphor that the author is going to continue with, right? He's going to instruct us how to run it. There is a race. It's, it's, it's life. It's, it's how, we, how we run our Christian life, right? He's been comparing it to this. And so we're going to look at three commands this morning. We call them imperatives, that the author gives here. Now, what is an imperative and a command? This idea that God is saying something to us that is not optional. He's saying, this is imperative. You must do this. If you're going to follow me, if you're going to believe, you must live this way. You must do this thing, right? I'm going to call it a command. In, in the grammar, we call it an imperative, but I'm going to call it a command. So there's three commands that the author is going to specifically give um, that God is saying, you must do this. Because here's the thing, he's going to tell them how to run because this life is hard. He's trained them up. He's allowed persecution to come into life. He's training them up to run. There's been some discipline in their life, and now it's time to keep running. And they'll continue to be trained as they, as they run. And then we're going to look at two warnings the author gives. He's going to give two warnings. So if, if you don't follow these commands, good chance you're going to end up with something that's not going to be pleasant and so I'm going to warn you to be faithful here in following these commands. And so three commands and two warnings. All right, we're going to jump right into the first command. Command number one, we must keep running the race. That's really what the author is going to share here in verse 12. We must keep running the race. And you think, well, that's kind of obvious. No, because how many people do you know, and maybe you've seen this in yourself, who want to quit running at times? And why do we quit running? Because we're fatigued. Think about the early church here now. Think about the people he's speaking with and, and this analogy he's running. They have, they have potentially left the Old Testament way of doing things, the sacrificial system. They've come to know Christ, right? They're, we think about being exhausted in our life. Every day they had to get up and make food. They didn't, they didn't open the fridge and food was there. They didn't go to the market and just everything was there and food was already prepared. Every day it was hard Life was hard. Sickness. They didn't have an urgent care and 
all of these things. It was hard. Life was hard. They would get tired. And now think about what he's asking these believers to do. He's asking them to leave the old covenant system, the, the sacrificial system, possibly break ranks with their family and, and move into this new way of believing and trusting in Christ and following after this guy who's been crucified and now supposedly has been resurrected. You can see that they maybe are tired. Maybe there's a disagreement among the early church there. You can only imagine that there probably was. Heck, we have disagreements and we have the whole scripture here. Christianity's brand new to them. And, and, and well, what about, maybe we should be circumcised. No, we shouldn't be circumcised. You can see that the disagreements potentially are there, all the things that are happening. It's hard. They grow weary, right? Maybe there's persecution in their life. And so they're growing weary. And so we, maybe they're apathetic. When I think about the church today, I think about many of us struggle with those things. Look, I grow weary at times. I, 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 I think I've told you some days when I pull in the parking lot and I see all the, the people out there mowing grass, I'm like, I just want to mow grass. I, I just want to trade with one of those guys. I just want to mow grass. I don't want to have to think about anything. Not that they aren't thinking about things. I'm not putting that down. I'm saying, in fact, they're sharing the gospel with each other. But I mean, I just want to step out. I'm weary sometimes. And I, my... I just want to coast. And God says, no, this is not a time to coast. This is a time to run, right? Don't, don't quit running, right? And so let's look at that first verse. Hebrews chapter 12, 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. This idea of, of therefore, now he's, he's, once again, now he's, every time we go therefore, it's back to what we just looked at, right? And it's based on this discipline, Therefore, since you've been disciplined, since you've been honed and matured in your faith, and I've, I've fashioned you in this way, therefore, I'd like to say, start running. Don't quit running. Get involved in the race. Don't relax. Don't let your hands down. This whole idea of, of the hands is this imagery of this, um, we're in control. Our hands play such a vital, vital role in our life. Everything we do, our professions, everything we do, how we, how we um, do everything. We greet people, all of it. And this idea that when our hands are down, it's like we've given up. We've just, we're, we're just not, we just don't want to go any longer. We're just kind of apathetic towards the whole thing. And he's saying, as believers, we cannot do that. You must lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. This idea that don't be afraid. Don't, don't, you have to, you, you have trained you for this. Therefore, I've trained you for this. Do this. I've disciplined you now. Run, run, Right? This, this idea, he's, I just want to tell you, he's like, like many times, the author's always referring back to the Old Testament. Why? Because that's what they know. That's their heritage. That's what they, they've studied. They understand it. And here in this text, I think he's really bringing forward Isaiah chapter 35, verse 3 and 4. Isaiah here uh, has been writing, and he's talking about when the Jews come back in uh, to the country, back into their homeland after being exiled. And what does he say to them? He says, Strengthen your weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Be strong, fear not. Yes, we've been exiled. Yes, we've been put into bondage. We're back. God is at work. Let's get to work. Let's start running again. Let's do the thing that we need to do. Let's stay faithful before the Lord. It's going to be grueling, yes. It's going to take a lot of work to rebuild, yes. But now is not the time to be weak or feeble-minded, but to dive in. Command number two. Command number two. We must clear our path and run well so others can follow. 
We must clear a path, right, so that others may follow. Now, here in the text, let's just go ahead and read the text. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 13. The text says, make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Now, I'll tell you, when I'm studying passages like this, I'm like, okay, Lord, help me understand what you're wanting to communicate with this, right? And, and so I spend a lot of time studying. There's a, a couple different uh, takes on this, and I, I tell you what I, I'll tell you what I think that, that I think is what the Lord is trying to say here. This idea of making straight your path for your feet. Now think about the runner analogy again. The best way to run is straight. To, to get where you're going, don't take any detours. Don't, don't, don't compromise anywhere, right? Get your knees strengthened, run straight. The challenge is, is that we want to say, well, I don't want to be persecuted, so I'm going to go this way. I, I'm not, I don't want to go that way because that's going to be challenging. It's going to be hard. That's a hard road to go. I don't want to go that way. And so he's saying, be straight. That's one way of, I think, looking at this, and I think that's a good way to look at it. And we'll see that here in a minute. But this idea, paths for your feet, make straight. The idea could make smooth um, for your feet. That word path, really in, in the Greek, this is the idea of, um, if you know, um, you know history, Rome, all roads, lead, all roads lead to Rome, right? Because the Roman Empire put roads everywhere. Now, what made the path? The wagons and the wheels, you know, we, we were hiking the other day, and, and uh, you know, and you walk that path enough, it treads down the grass, and, and you can see the path. That's what makes the path clear. And so here in the early Testament, New Testament, the, the wagons would go, all of the things, the wheels of the, the, the carts and all of those things would, would put ruts in the ground, and it would, it would be a path, right? You would see where to go, right? That's what it did. You could see it. There wasn't probably road signs like we have today, you know, all over the highway, all these. There's a path. And notice that it says here, so that the lame, so what is lame may not be out of joint, but rather be healed. We're going to look at a couple different ways of this. So what does that mean? I think what he's saying there is he says, look, people are following you. People are looking at you. You need to make your path straight and clear. You need to remove the obstacles in your path. You're running. One way of looking at this is, I think he's saying, is remove the sin in your life. You cannot run unencumbered if you don't remove the sin in your life. And why do I say that? Because if we look back at chapter 12, verse 1, what does the author say? Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, he's talking about the people in chapter 11, their ancestors who lived faithfully, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So this picture is clearing the path, getting rid of the sin that entangles us. So when he's talking about run straight, it's this idea, look, because people are going to follow you, and if your path is not straight, people who follow you will become lame. In other words, hurt. This, once again, they, this idea of, and I know it's maybe hard to see, this idea of, of the path being rude, you know, rutted, and, and people are going to hurt themselves as they follow. If you don't smooth the way, if you don't lead well, people will not be able to follow well, and they will become lame. See, here's the thing. We have a responsibility in our Christian life to run well. Why? Because people are watching. 
people are following, your children, your spouses, your neighbors, your coworkers are watching you run. Run, run in, your, in your faith. They're watching how you run, right? And many of them may be even following you. We see that all the time with children, right? They do what we do, right? Because they're watching what we do. And when we run that direction and we don't make our path straight, when we allow sin in our life and it's part of our course, our children fall in line. And what happens? They become lame. They become hurt and injured by it. Right? Because, because the father is, is using foul language or, or there's arguments in the home or, or there's um, you know, just sinful behavior at some level and the children are seeing that and they follow in that footsteps. And that path is rutted and it is hard on them and they become lame because they get hurt because they see mom and dad and they drink all the time and there's alcohol in the home all the time, and there's, there's drunkenness, and so the child starts to drink, and they're following in that path. And what the author, I think, is here saying is make straight your path for your feet so that what is lame, those who are coming behind you, those that maybe not be as mature as you, may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. I, I think he's talking the lame or about people that are following. Now, some people would argue that it's you yourself not become lame, and I think that's true too, right? We don't want to have any injury to ourselves. We want to make sure that, that our feet are firm on good, solid ground. And once again, that means putting the sin aside. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 26 puts it this way. It says, ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. So what's he saying? Think about how you're, where you're going. Ponder the path for your feet. How am I going to live? And if I live in a way that honors the Lord and is respectful, I choose to be holy, we're going to see that more here in a minute, then my path will be sure, right? It'll be sure. But if I decide and I don't think about my path and I allow sin in my life and I I have sin in my path, then I'm not going to be sure. It's going to be an unhealthy place. And the people who follow me will be lame. I think he's going to I think we could tie this back to once again to Isaiah 38, or excuse me, 35, verse 8. Isaiah says it this way And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. I think what Isaiah is saying there is look. If you live your life and you make your way straight, you make your path straight, you live in a way that's holy before the Lord, even for those people that follow you, it's going to be a blessing to them, even to the fool, because they're following you. They're not going to come up lame. They understand where you're going. They, 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 they're, they're mirroring themselves. They're imitating you as you walk. And so even if they don't have knowledge, even if they're, they're fools, they will not go astray because they see that it is good and they will go that way as well. We have a responsibility as believers to live right, not just before the Lord, but before each other and before the world. We must make our path clear and run so that others can follow. All right, third command. We must strive for peace and holiness as we run. We must strive for peace and holiness as we run. This picture, once again, is the, the runner is running, and, and as we run this race, as we're doing this, this idea that we, we're to strive for peace and holiness. Now, I want to look at this word strive a little bit. It's this idea of, of pursuing something. Notice that he doesn't say 
The command is that you must be, you must live at peace with everyone, or that you must be holy, right? He says you must strive for peace and strive for holiness. This idea that as we run, we're commanded to live at peace with everybody. To the best of our ability, we're commanded to live at, live at peace. I would ask, in your Christian life, is that demonstrated in your life? Are you, are you striving? This idea that you, you want to live at peace, it is a priority. Because remember here, it's a command, it's an imperative to do this. This is not something that's just a suggestion. We're to live at peace with people. Where do we see this run amok big time in our culture right now is the world of what? Politics. Christians that cannot get along and live at peace with each other because of their view on political things. Just can't, can't see it. They just, they just can't get along. There's bitterness among the family, among t- friends and neighbors and, and all sorts of things. And see, here's the problem. Everybody's watching the Christian community and how we respond, how we're running, what we proclaim, what we say, how we live. So they follow. If we're not running well, if we're not running and, and seeking after holiness, they're going to become lame if they follow us. I'll give you an example, kind of the focus here. So I've shared this before. Several years ago, four, three, four years ago, my wife and I went to a BFC trip, and then we um, went to New York and stayed at a, um, up near the Twin Lakes and stayed at a bed and breakfast one night. We were only there one night, and uh, when we checked in that night, um, guy introduced himself. He's, I don't know, 50, 60 years old. And, and, and just without going into all the details, real quickly, we got the idea that the, the gentleman that I was speaking to, to um, was living in a homosexual lifestyle with his partner and a nice guy. And, you know, the, that they ran the place and it was a nice little home. And so uh, that night we were praying and, and my wife and I, and I was like, Lord, okay, help my way to be straight, right? <laughs> help me to, to not you know, skirt anything here. If conversation comes up, help me to be straight, right? Help me to be loving. Help me to be straight. Help me to be holy before you. And so the next morning we come down for breakfast and, and there's some other couples that are staying in the house and we all have a breakfast. It was great. And, and uh, some led to one thing led to another. I didn't really say that I was a pastor, but it, somebody finally asked me what I did. And so I said, and, and then everybody gets up and leaves except for Terry and I. And, um, his name was Brian, and we're, it's just us in, in, at the kitchen table, and Brian's standing there. He's one of the owners. He says, can I ask you a question? I'm like, oh, man, <laughs> right? Make my way straight, Lord. Make my way straight, right? And you won't, you, won't, you won't guess what he said. He said, why do so many Christians support Donald Trump? That wasn't the question I was waiting for, Right? And I was like, whew, right? But, but then I thought about that. Here's a guy who's watching. He's watching the Christian community. And he, what's he see? I'm going to be real bold here, real plain. He sees Christians who profess one thing and who almost affirm sinful behavior in our government because we think the ends outweigh you know, the means outweigh the ends. I mean, we want what we want, so it's okay how we get there. doesn't matter his behavior. We're going we're gonna to say it's okay because the ends are what's most important. The means are not a big deal. He looks on, and I'm, we're causing him to come up lame. 
You say, well, he's not a Christian. I know. He's following, though. He's watching the Christian community. Our job is to live holy before the Lord. Our job is to call out sin no matter where we see it. Our job is to be clear about what the gospel is and what it is not and how people live. Our job is not to get somebody elected because there's certain policies that we want. Yes, we should vote. Yes, we should be involved in the political system. But when there is sin, we should call it out. And that was his issue. That's not a good witness for those people that are following us. And so I shared that. I said, look, if I was his pastor, <laughs> I'd have a lot of conversations, right? I said, I don't know that he's a Christian. He claims to be a Christian. I said, but I don't know. But I said, it, dis- it is disturbing to me how Christian leaders and Christians in our culture do not call him out on things. It's one thing to say, I, I, I appreciate his policy here or this or that, but his behavior is unacceptable. Absolutely, right? Especially because he's claiming to be a believer. He's, he's claiming to be a believer, and we're going to see that here later in the text. And so, but, but see, that's what was on this guy's mind. And, and I will tell you that we, we had a, a good discussion, and, um, and, and the other question did come up later. He looked at me and said, so do you... Do you think, do you, under, do you know that, um, I don't know if you've noticed, but David and I, I said, oh, no, I noticed. I understand, right? And, uh, and we had a very good conversation, and he asked me what I thought about that. Here's where it came time to be straight. And I said, well, I believe it's sin. I believe that you're living in sexual sin. And we were sitting in his living room, and, you know, I'm in his home, right, saying, yeah. And, and we had this very candid discussion. He shared multiple things. He'd been with his partner for 24 years. Um, I said, you know, I admire your commitment, but what you're doing is sinful. I said, it, it's no, you know, it is different, but in some ways it's no different than sexual sin. It's no different than somebody living with their girlfriend or sleeping with their boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever it may be. I said, yeah. And he said, well, if I came to your church, could I be on the worship team? I said, no. Well, why not? I said, because you're living in willful sin. I, I can't. And, and we just had this discussion. He was very polite and very kind. Um, and I just, I, just, I just wanted to make my way straight. You know, because I could already see that he's looking at Christians and saying, they're not calling out things the way they should in politics. So I'm trying to be clear. I'm saying, no. And Lord, just give me words. Give me words. And, and I, I wish I could go back and have that conversation again because obviously I've, I wish I would have did some things differently and said some different things and we only had a short amount of time. And, and so, but, but I, our job is to make our way straight. And that's really what the author is trying to say to his readers here. He's saying, look, you've got to run for the Lord. And you've got to go and you've got to make your way straight because people are watching. You've got to make your path clear for your own feet because people are coming along. And if you don't make your path clear, people are going to stumble behind you. They're not going to understand the gospel and, and they're going to come up lame. And if you do it right, what? It says they'll be healed. This is a healing thing, right? So it's just a beautiful picture here. But we must strive to live at peace with everyone. Paul says it in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. It says, if, it, if possible, so far it depends on you. Live peaceably with all. Now, what does he mean? He said, look, I understand that if you don't, you, we don't compromise our, our, our principles. We don't compromise our faith, the truths of Scripture, to have peace. We don't compromise. But we can still live at peace. Right? I mean, think about Jesus here when, when he comes before Pilate. 
he lived at peace. Pilate ultimately had him killed. Well, he was at peace, right? He doesn't have to fight for anything because God has already won. Christ has already overcome for us. He's already overcome. We just sang about it, right? The grave could not hold him because he was not guilty. We don't need to fight for anything. We just need to stand and be a good witness and keep our paths straight for his purposes, for his, his glory. We, we don't want to let the name of Christ be defiled because we are living unholy before him, right? Now, don't hear that we must be perfect. That's why this idea of striving and actively pursuing, it, it's, it's this idea that we're, we're pursuing peace, we're pursuing a holiness. We, we can never achieve it perfectly because we're human, we're, we're sinful, we, we, we have a sin nature. Only when someday we die and we, when we go to heaven and there'll be a glorification that happens, the fullness of our salvation will come into picture and we'll be fully saved, so to speak. Will we get there? But until then, we should strive. And that means that it, we wrestle for it. This is not easy. This, this is not, some people think, well, I just, yeah, I just need, no, you wrestle. These are hard things that you don't want to do, that you need to push into. This person that, that you're at odds with, you need to strive for peace with them. That means you don't just say, well, I'm going to just ignore them. That'll be peace, right? No, that's not what we do. We, we strive for peace. Like I have people in my life right now that I'm trying to find ways to strive for peace, and it is painful. I would rather walk away and let my hands droop and say, yeah, but God says, no, get in the race. I've trained you. I've prepared you. I've disciplined you. Run and strive. Keep striving. Leave everything on the field, right? That analogy again to not leave nothing. Leave everything on the field. The psalmist 34 verse 14 says it this way, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. This idea of turning away from something to put off Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 4, to put off these things, to put off unwholesome talk, right? To put off lying and to put on telling truth and only what is building up for others. This idea that we put off and we put on. Turn away from doing evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. It's this idea that it's not something that's going to come naturally to us as people. We pursue it. We have to make sure that we're working at it hard. And it may be pursuing peace with your children. It may be pursuing peace with your spouse or, or an extended family member or a, a coworker, or someone even here in church. You pursue peace because that is what honors and glorifies God as you run. It is not about running over someone. Then that second part of it, let's look at that just a little more. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, this term holiness here, he's saying what we're pursuing holiness. What is that? A righteousness, a right living, a, a, a right way to live before the Lord, a, an obedience, right? We're pursuing it. Are you pursuing it as a Christian? Or are you saying, well, I, I gave my life to Jesus when I was 10. I, I've been going to church. Yeah, I got a bunch of sin in my life, but hey, I'm saved. I, I, I got baptized 15. I'm good. I'm just living sinfully. That is not pursuing holiness. I would even argue that if you're in that position, you should really begin to be on your hands and knees before the Lord and say, am I really been born again? Because if you do not hate your sin, if you're not striving for 
holiness before the Lord. I'm not talking perfection. I'm not talking that God doesn't love you if you fail. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, but if you're not convicted of your sin, then I don't know whether you're really where you think you may be. I don't care if you've been attending church for 20 years. I don't care if you've been baptized. I don't care if you've been teaching and giving and all those things. If you do not hate your sin, if you're not praying that God will reveal your sin to you so that you can confess it, if you're not totally depending on Christ to cover the struggles that you have and the sinfulness of your life, then I wonder whether you really are where you think you are. We look back in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10. Brian covered this last week. It, talking here about the earthly fathers and this idea of discipline. It says, For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he, being God, disciplines us for our good. So there's purpose in this, this training up of us. Why? Why is it good and what's it for? That we may share his holiness. That we may share in his holiness the righteousness of Christ we share in. The, and, and so that's what we're doing. This discipline is made to help us live holy. It, it is not made just so that we, we can um, have some name over it, that we, we can claim something. No, the discipline, all the things that we've been doing and the, and the hardships that we went through, the suffering, the training, and the discipline have made us so that we can live holy before the Lord and that we can share in the righteousness of the Lord. Because without it, no one will see the Lord. So without it, without desiring holiness, I would argue that there is no salvation. There is no change. There is no being born again. There's no transformation in someone's life. And so there's no seeing the Lord. That's really what he's just saying. For the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. If you don't, now it's, we're not talking about perfection. We're not talking about all of that. Grace covers this. We, we do struggle, but he's going to get very specific here in a, a little bit here in the text, and we're going to talk about that. All right. We're going to look at the next war, the first warning. Warning number one. Warning number one. We're going to skip 1 John. Warning number one bitterness is destructive. Bitterness is destructive. Gosh, I was waiting for amen. I gave you twice opportunities. Nobody went there. Bitterness is destructive. Now, this word bitterness here in the text, we, we, it is true that bitterness resides in our heart. We get angry about something. We get bitter about something the way that happened. And yes, that's true. And that, that is true here in this text. I believe that is a part of it. But this word bitterness also is this idea of unbelief. Right? There's a... There's a hardness of our heart. We, we hear it in Scripture all the time. There's a hardness of our heart. We, we're rejecting the gospel, right? There's a hardness. We, we don't live at peace with people. We don't seek after the holiness. And there's this bitterness. And this, this, this can happen in our lives, inside the church, outside the church. Bitterness can raise up in many different places, right? And what the author is getting ready to do here in 15 is he's just going to warn us that bitterness is destructive. And if we do not run well, if we do not make our paths straight, if we don't do those things and hold each other accountable and admonish one another and make sure that bitterness can rise up in the church and rise up in the community, and it is destructive. It is destructive. Verse 15. See to it. Now, this idea of seeing to it, right? I just want to point something out here before I read the rest of this. Who's he speaking to here? He's speaking to the Christians. He's, this is not a pastoral epistle. What do I mean by that? 
He's not writing to pastors and elders. He's writing to the body of Christ. So when he says see to it, who's he talking to? You. Me. He's talking to everybody. You see to this. Not your pastor. I'm in this category. You see to this. Don't miss this. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. You say, well, how can I make sure that people are saved by the grace of God? Notice he didn't say saved. What he's saying there, I believe, is he's saying, see to it that no one fails to understand that God loves them and has made a way for them. To obtain it, to know it. They may, only God brings life. Only God gives us a new heart, right? Only God causes us to be born again. But our job is to make sure that every people group is reached, that they can obtain the grace of God. See to it, right? See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. He's telling the people that, that he's getting ready, he's trained them up, he's, he's, disciple, he's disciplined them so that they can go and run their race, and now he's telling them live at peace with people, seek after holiness, and as you're doing that, make sure that the gospel is being proclaimed to everybody that you know. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And I would say inside the church community, make sure that we're, we're resting in the grace of God. I think that's another point he's trying to make here, that, that we're, we're obtaining the grace, that we're living in the grace. And we're going to see here when we get to the end of this text that there's, Esau does not obtain the grace of God, right? He does not. And, and one of these things is, once again, we, we are to see to it as the body of Christ. We are here to disciple one another. We're here to, to love one another and to admonish one another. And I will tell you that, that one of the things that the church does not do well, and I'm not talking just our church, I don't know that we don't do it well either, is what I would call as church discipline. And you say, ooh, I'm out of here, <laughs> right? I don't, I don't want to be in a church that, that calls people out for their sin. Okay, why not? It is the most loving thing we can do. I mean, I would hope that if I was in sin, someone would come to me and call me out on it. If I refused, that, that you would call me out more and, and that people would come and see me and do that. And yet many churches don't do it. In fact, I would argue that 99% of churches or 97% of churches probably don't do it. Because nobody wants to do the hard thing. Nobody wants to confront the sin. And, and yet, we, and we're going to see here in a minute, he's going to come right out against some things because we, we can't allow sin to flourish. It's like unbelief. You, you don't let unbelief happen in a believer. In other words, my, my point is, is if someone's professing Christ and they're living in open sin, you, you can't. Now, we welcome everybody to come. Unbelievers, we want them to come, absolutely. But I'm talking about professed believers of Christ that are living in sin. They are our responsibility. See to it, right? See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. See this idea that people are, are being influenced by our life? By it, many will be defiled. In other words, your bitterness, your unbelief will infect others and become defiled. You, you have a responsibility. So you see to it that the gospel is maintained. You see to it that you live peacefully. You see to it that you're, you will be holy. You're pursuing holiness so that these things don't happen. He's instructing them how to, how to begin to live a life in the early church because bitterness is destructive. And so we need to see to it that 
does not get a foothold. This idea probably resonates with them. If we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 17 and 18, here Moses in his writing says, And you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which are among them. Be aware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. You and I have a responsibility to protect the flock. Obviously, as a shepherd of this flock, I have a responsibility for that, the other elders. But I would argue that if you're leading student ministry or children's ministry or any ministry you're involved, you're, you're a shepherd at some level. If you have children, you're shepherding people. In fact, you're influencing people in your friendships. You're shepherding those people as a believer. And so that's why he's just saying, you know, make your way straight. Make it straight. <clears throat> Remove the sin from your life. People are following. He's got to do this. Right? Because what is he saying here? Beware lest there be among a man or woman or your clan or tribe who's turning away today. We need to be aware of what's happening. <clears throat> you look in the Old Testament. <clears throat> if someone committed sexual um, adultery, and, and what did they do? They stoned them. I mean, like, they said, no, it can't be. It's going to infect and poison the church. And I, and I would argue that many of the Western church today has been poisoned because we have allowed sexual sin and, and sin to come into the church and, and not check it, not, not say anything about it. And I'm not saying we, we drag people out back and stone them. That's not my point. I grew in my early teens and 20s, I lived in sexual morality. And no one checked me. And I professed to be a believer. Now, why was that? One, because I wasn't attending church anywhere. I, I didn't have believers in my life. And I'll tell you, when I got believers in my life, they checked me. And I began to change. Because that's the, that's the purpose of the fellowship. That's the purpose of the church, is the gospel's being presented. They made sure that I obtained the grace of God and that I was living rightly. They, they put the emphasis there. They didn't just let me live. In fact, the first pastor that, that pastored the Ridge Church, his name was Bill Craig, and my wife will attest to this. She, he came right at me all the time. I'm like, dude, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, he was my age. He was 30 years old, and he was loving. He just came right at me. But it's what I needed to hear. It's what I needed to hear. Because we can't allow this poisonous fruit. And so I would just say, are you... Are you admonishing one another in love? Are you willing to have those hard conversations? Are you doing those things with people you love? And do you understand that it is for their good? It, 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 is, we're, it is absolutely for their good. It's, it shows love for them. All right. Verse 16. Now he goes into a little bit more in detail. That no one is sexually immoral, unholy like Esau, Right? So what are they being defiled by? Sexual, immoral, sexual immorality, right? Sexual immoral or unholiness like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. 
So I wanna, I wanna camp out here on this sexual morality for a second. And by it, many are defiled that know sexual morality or unholy like Esau. He's saying, now notice that he, he could choose a couple things to pick out that were the number one thing that he was going to talk about in the church. Sexual morality is number one. I think we can look today and we say our, our culture is over-sexualized. It's off the chart. We don't even recognize how far off the chart it is. And we've become immune to it. It's in every, I mean, I can't get on my phone and read news articles without half of them being about the Kardashians and having pictures all over it that are tempting people like me to watch and look. I mean, I can't read a simple news article without that in my hand, in my phone, tempting me. It's everywhere. It's it's the, it's the way we live, it's the magazines we read, it's the music we sing. I mean, we are just so saturated with it. And look, we can be in the world but not of the world. But I'm just telling you what the writer here is, is going to say, and I'm going to take you to some, some, some verses by Paul in 1 Corinthians that are just going to come very clear about this. It's this theme, no one is sexually immoral. So in the church... As a membership of the church, if you say, I love Jesus, I want to live rightly, I want to pursue holiness, and all of a sudden you're living in sexual morality, what is the responsibility of the church? See to it. We need to do something. We need to go to them. We need to love on them. We need to admonish them. We need to, but at some point, if they refuse to turn from that, there has to be a way that we change our relationship with them. And you say, well, that's so hard, Pastor Raleigh. I... I get it, but it's love, right? It's love. Now, just, let's read this and I'll, I'll explain. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. This is Paul saying this. Now, he's obviously writing to uh, Corinth, the church at Corinth, very over-sexualized and Greek goddesses and all sorts of things, right? But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, meaning believer, right? Anyone, believer, male or female, bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual morality, or greed, or an idolater, or a rivaler, or reveler, or drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Okay, this is where we get uncomfortable. Because what he's saying is, is if you bear the name of Christ, if you confess that Jesus has transformed you, and you're living in willful sin, sexual sin, He's telling the other believers, do not go to lunch with that person. Do not have fellowship in the same way. Yes, invite them to church. Yes, if they want to talk about their Christian walk and, and they want to help in their struggles, absolutely spend time with them. But if they call you and say, hey, I got tickets to the, the Bengals game, man, we got 50-yard line tickets. Would you like to go with me and my girlfriend? No. I would love to go, but I can't. Well, why not? Because I love you, brother, and, and you're living in sexual sin. I, 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 can't, I can't condone that. I can't, I can't be that kind of relationship with you right now. What can I do to, come, to have you get to repentance? What can, well, come on. And boy, that's where the, culture, we don't, the church doesn't want to go there. Now, I'll tell you, if my neighbor had 50-yard line tickets and they weren't a believer and they were living with their girlfriend, I'd go in a heartbeat. They haven't professed Christ. 
they haven't professed Christ. I would go and hopefully use it as an evangelistic opportunity. And at some point, I may end up start going with that person in the church because I'll be, begin to believe that they're really not saved and they'll have to go back and start evangelizing again. And so maybe I would go at that moment. But the fact is, if someone is confessing Christ and, and they're living this way, we cannot say, well, yeah, we can keep the same fellowship we've always had. What's the motivation to walk away from their sin? There is none. They get their cake and eat it too. They get all the fellowship and all the things of the church and they can live. And that's what God is saying is that we can't have. And we do that with love. We do that with grace, obviously. And, and, and we do it to restore people. And it's, it's not, we don't want it to be harsh. That's not the point. And it's not a legal system. It's, we're not talking about works-based. We're talking about that if, if someone can live in willful sexual sin, there's a question about whether they really have been born again. Because those two things can't stay together. Not long-term without serious wondering whether someone's really been born again. Paul goes on in chapter 6, verse 9. He says, Or do you not know that the righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The, the, the unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. I think that's where we're at today in our culture. We're deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. So all those things are pointing to sexual sin. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. You say, well, but I got baptized. I don't care. If you're living that way continually, I don't know how you can live that way and profess Christ. That's what the scripture's saying, and it's a red flag. It's a red flag. I, I've told you before, I was living that way, and I was professing Christ. And I said before, if I'd have died at 25, no one should have got up at my funeral and said, well, I feel great about where Raleigh's at today. <laughs> no one should have said that. Now, by God's grace, I didn't die. And he's allowed me to work on my sanctification with obviously his working in my heart and changing me. One more. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. Paul says, flee from sexual morality. Flee. Right? Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So I think what the author is saying is, is as we're running, we're seeking after holiness, but here's the warning. If you live this way, You're not going to hear the kingdom of God. All right. Verse 16. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. So now he's given another view. Another. I don't think he's saying Esau was sexual immoral. We don't know, but there's nothing in the scripture here to support that. But this idea of unholy like Esau, what is he saying? Esau had an unbelief. He had an ungodly spirit about him. Why do you know that? Who sold his birthright for a single meal. This idea that, and I'm not going to read it, but if you want to go read it, it's uh, Genesis chapter 25, verses 29 through 40, something like that, where here we see Esau is the firstborn of Isaac. And, 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 and that carried great significance in that culture. It was, it was, Isaac obviously was the bloodline. I'm sure that had been explained at some level that God was working through there. We, we, Esau is probably aware of his father and Moses and all that's the promises of Abraham and all this. And where is Esau at? He comes in one day and he's hungry and, and his brother there is Jacob. He's got some stew going and, and he basically says, well, Jacob says, look, I'll, I'll, I'll give you some stew if you sell me your birthright. Now, I don't know if that was right of Jacob, but that's what he did. And Esau sells his birthright for soup. 
He's disregarded everything that God has given him. It's an ungodly act. He's, he's, he's basically saying, I, I don't care about this. It's not important to me. And if you read that, you'll see that in the text. In fact, in Genesis chapter 25, verse 34, it says, thus Esau despised his birthright, didn't care about it, right? And so what happens? Here's the second warning. An unrepentant heart leads to eternal death. Now the author is basically reminding his readers that he's given the example of Esau, which who they know, and you'll see that here in a minute, they know who he is, and he's reminding them if we live like Esau, if we do what Esau has done, there is eternal death if we're unrepentant. So let's look at verse 17. It says, for you know that afterwards, now what's the author saying here? It's for you know him, right? You've heard of him, you've read about him. We, we know who Esau is, right? It's not, they know him from the past. They know the story of Esau. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Okay, so now that's a tough one, because you're saying, well, gosh, if he's repenting and God didn't allow him to repent, that's not, that's not biblical. No, I, I don't think that's what that's saying. Notice what the text says here. When his desire to inherit the blessing was rejected. His desire was not one of repentance. His brother, had, he'd sold his birthright. He comes in to his father to get a blessing, but Jacob has already stole the blessing along with the help of his mother, Rebekah. And the father says, I've already blessed. He didn't realize that he had blessed Jacob. I've already blessed Jacob. And so now Esau is angry. He's, he says it's, he's weeping but what was his desire? It was to get the blessing. He was rejected and he found no chance to repent. What does that mean, he found no chance to repent? Really, I think when you study that, you're going to see that, that he, he regretted what he had done. Have you ever been there? You've regretted what you've done. You're not really repentful. You've not, you've not really said, oh my gosh, I've sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against them and I, I want to repent. I want to turn away from this. I want to confess my sin. No, we don't see any evidence of that in Esau. And that's what the author is saying here. He was regretful for what he did. He regretted selling his birthright because what now? He's not getting the blessing. This was all human things. He wanted something and he's not getting it. He, and it's, it's not that he, he didn't repent. If, if he truly would have been true repentance, God would have forgiven him. But his heart was not there. His heart was not there. He found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears, right? Regret is not repentance. There's a big difference. We can come and, and we can regret. Many years ago, I talked to a gentleman that was committed adultery, and I, I confronted him, and, and he regretted he got caught. But he was not remorseful. He was not repentful. Later, I believe he did repent, but initially he did not repent. And I told him, I, and I read him that passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9. I said, look, I can give you no, no guarantee of your salvation because you are living in willful sexuality, uh, sexual morality. And he looked at me like I was crazy. He said, well, you baptized me. And I said, yeah, I know. It doesn't matter. You know, you're living in willful sexuality and morality. I, I mean, you're not, you're not sorry. You're not repentful. I can't see anything in Scripture that says that you should be comfortable right now in your salvation. All right, leave you with this last verse. 2 Corinthians chapter, 10, or chapter 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation, 
right? This idea that godly grief produces repentance. If we're truly sorry, I, I think about King David when he has Bathsheba's husband killed, and then I think it's in Psalm 51, he goes, before you, Lord, I have sinned against you, right? There's this deep repentance. When we see the prodigal son, and he goes and he squanders all his wealth, and he comes back to his father, he says, Father, against the Lord and against you I have sinned. There's this deep heart of repentance. Not like, oh gosh, I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry I did that, right? Regret does not equal repentance. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Without regret... In other words, we don't regret confessing our sin. We don't regret it. it we, we repent. We turn away from it. We're not wishing I, I could have had those worldly things. No, I've turned away from it. Oh, I regret that I can't do that. Or I can't be involved in that. No, we don't do that. We, we could even maybe argue and make the case where, where Lot's wife leaves the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and, and she turns around and she's toned, turned to a pillar of salt. Some would argue that she regretted leaving, Right? She regretted leaving that lifestyle, and that's why God, he told her not to look back at that. We leave it without regret. I don't want my sinful past. I don't want to make, I don't want to glorify it at all. I, I want to I kill it. I want to put it off. And then it goes on there. It says, Where, whereas worldly grief produces death. So here, as we close out today's message, God instructs us how to run. He tells us to not quit running. He tells us to get engaged. It's important. He tells us to make sure that we, we clear our path and we run well because others are following. He tells us that we should strive for peace and a holiness as we run. He warns us that, that bitterness is destructive and that we must be on guard against it and we must make sure that we are working together to make sure the gospel is proclaimed and that everybody can obtain the grace of God. And then finally, he warns the ultimate warning that an unrepentant heart leads to eternal death. So, what's the next step for us? I want to I make the case that we should follow Jesus, right? Two weeks ago, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, right? This idea that we keep our eyes on Christ. So today I would tell you the next step I would encourage you is that run for the joy that is set before you, Right? We have purpose in running. We're not running just to be running. We're running for the joy set before us. We're running for the glory of God. We're running for, for Him so that we can run well and that we don't lead people astray so that people like the person up in, in New York that I saw, I can be a good witness that my path is straight, that people can be influenced by my life, right? We run for the joy that we see that we acknowledge. And if we're running for that joy, we will put off sin. We will not live in sexual morality because the joy overwhelms those things. And we will run for him. And if we, there's nothing can help us run and stay, stay clean from, from all the sin of life except for the joy that we have in Christ. And so I would encourage you as you think about challenges of being disciplined by the Lord and, and dealing with sometimes the persecution or just the living in a fallen world and weariness, just keep going back to saying, you know, Christ endured the suffering for the joy that was set before him, and we should do the same. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for our time together today. Lord, you have put us and trained us to run. 
You've disciplined us in so many ways as your children, and we know that as you discipline us, it means that you care about us and that we should respond well to that, even in the hardships, because you're honing and and fashioning us and you're making us mature in our walk with you. You're burning away the impurities. You're separating the wheat and the chaff in our life. Father, that we may run. And Lord, help us to do that and not grow weary. Help us not to have weak knees. Help us to make sure that we are clearing a path and realizing that people are following, are looking on to us and that we represent you. We're witnesses. And Father, help us to strive for peace and holiness as we live out our life. Help us to seek a righteousness, obviously a righteousness that we have first and foremost just because that we are in Christ, but even as we live out our life, Father, help us to obtain that righteousness even in this earth at some level until we reach glorification. And Father, help us to be aware of the warnings that the author gives us today of bitterness and and the destructive nature of it. And then ultimately, Lord, that reminds us that an unrepentful heart without the grace of God means eternal death. And so, Lord, help us to run for you. Help us to run for the joy that you've set before us. That joy is the work of Christ. That joy is the love and the sacrifice that Christ has made. Help us to respond by running well and seeking after you. Father, I pray if there was someone here today that does not know you, that somehow the words that we've sang, the the message that we've spoke from Scripture, the fellowship that we have, will bring healing to them because they see that we are running and that they see that we are yielding to you and that you alone are our Savior and Deliverer. And that today may be the first day that they enter the race as a believer. Father, I pray that that will be the case, that you will make that happen and give them a new heart in Christ. We thank you for all these things in his name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at Have a blessed day.